Let me pray before we get into John chapter 1, verses 19 through 51. Oh, gracious Father, we ask that you would help us to behold wonderful things in your word. God, help us to see and cherish the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that you sent into the world as the fulfillment of all of your promises, that we may know you and that we may have access to you in heaven. God, if there's need for us to be convicted, we pray that you would do it by your spirit. If our affections are cold, we pray that you would warm them. God, and for any who don't believe, we pray We plead that you would give them spiritual sight to see and to understand the things that we're going to look at. And God, if there's anything unhelpful or distracting from tonight, we pray that you would remove it. Oh God, help us as we look at your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, if you'll remember, we were in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And if you weren't with us, you can go back online, listen to those messages. They're going to be posted each week so that you can track where we're going in the Gospel of John. But let me go ahead and invite you to turn to John chapter 1 if you haven't already gotten there. So last week in John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18, we looked at the fact that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who was sent into the world by God the Father so that we might have light and life in his name. We see this beautiful introduction to the word that was made flesh for our salvation. The one who brings grace upon grace that we may know God. The one who pulls us from darkness and brings us into his glorious light. And then here in verses 19 through 51, we're going to see real life people start to interact with this glorious one that was just introduced. As we get past this prologue and into the kind of more narratival, the the storyline of John's gospel, again, we're going to see these real-life people interact with him. And we're going to see the questions that start to pop into their head, questions that for us we ought to ask ourselves. Is the word made flesh truly the fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament? We know that as we land in John that there's been a whole Old Testament that God has inspired and given to us. He has made promises to his people, and we're left to wonder, are these promises true? Are they trustworthy? Can we take God at his word that he said he would save a people for himself? We get to the Gospel of John, and those questions are at the forefront of our mind. They're at the forefront of John's mind. They're at the forefront of the disciples' mind. And so they're asking questions like, is this word made flesh truly the fulfillment of God's promises? Is he the true and final king to establish God's kingdom forever? Is Jesus the one through whom we can receive grace upon grace? Is he the one that we can actually get unrestricted access to God? In the past, we've had to rely upon priests to mediate our relationship to God. We've had to rely upon the sacrificial system to cleanse us so that God's wrath doesn't pour out upon us. But is Jesus the one that gives us uninhibited access to God. My dear friends, as one disciple of Jesus put it in John chapter 1, verse 39, come and see. Let's come and see if this Jesus that we're talking about truly is that Messiah. If you're visiting with us for the first time or maybe you don't identify as a Christian, I hope that you'll give us your time and attention over these next 30 minutes or so. And I hope that you'll come and see the wonder of what life in Jesus looks like.
If you've been coming to midweek, if you're already a Christian, I want to direct your attention to John chapter 1, verse 50. Jesus says here, do you believe you will soon see greater things in Jesus? Here, this disciple has come to believe in Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, it doesn't stop here. You're soon going to see greater things than this one thing. And so for us, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we ought to never get tired of staring in his face, of learning more about him, of helping us to understand more about God's character. And that's what Jesus is going to do for us here in this passage. Tonight in John chapter 1, 19 through 51, I think that John wants those who are reading his gospel to explore who Jesus is and then to dwell with him. If you're thinking about kind of a summary statement, John, in this gospel, see that Jesus wants us to go to be with him after we explore who he is and then to dwell with him. Now, at verse 39 from chapter 1, we'll see this take place. Two of John's disciples visit to explore who Jesus is, and upon Jesus' invitation to come and see, they respond, verse 39, by staying with him that day. The same verb here translated as staying is elsewhere used in John's gospel as abide. You may have heard that phrase, abide in me and I in you, from John 15. There Jesus tells us to abide in him so that we can bear much fruit in the Christian life. Same word that Jesus is telling us. They went to abide with Jesus. And so too for us, we are invited to go and abide with Jesus. John wants us to see that simply knowing about Jesus or claiming Jesus in name is not enough. We have to go and abide with him. Now I want to spend the rest of our time unpacking that for us to abide and explore Jesus and then to make our dwelling with him. Because this week's passage and passages in the weeks ahead are longer, is this distracting? Am I cutting in and out? Can I just use this, uh, this one? Here we go. Let's see how that's, let's see how this goes. Y'all can hear me? All right, fantastic. All right, so we were literally just about to get in the text, so that was a good place to pause. We're ready. We're on our toes. We're ready to see what, what God has for us here in John 1, verses 19 through 51. So I was saying that in the weeks ahead, you'll see on your handout, we're going to be covering a lot of text at different times. And so we're not going to be able to read through every verse as we cover some of, these, uh, some of these texts, but we are going to take time to walk through the content of all of these texts. Um, so just wanted to give that preface here at the out front and just want to give a summary overview before we move along with some reflections on various portions of this text. 
So this is going to be helpful for you to have your Bibles open. So if you don't yet have your Bible open, this is me inviting you to open your Bible to John 1, because we're going to work through this text from verse 19 all the way through down to verse 51. And it's going to be helpful for you to see this in the text for yourself. So in verses 19 through 28, we're going to see that John the Baptist, the one that was first introduced to us there in John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, has this expanding ministry. More and more people are coming to John the Baptist. And just as a quick note, John the disciple, the author of this gospel, is not the same John as John the Baptist. John the Baptist was particularly sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus. John the disciple uh, was one who followed Jesus in his earthly ministry and then composed this gospel for us. But so Jesus has yet to begin his ministry at this point. And all of Israel, again, as we talked about, is wondering when the promises of God made through the prophets and to the kings and to their father Abraham will come to pass. Suddenly, there's a man, much like a prophet, who preaches with power. He gains influence, as we were talking about. So much so that there's this Jewish delegation that's sent to ask him questions, to inquire about his teaching and his influence. You see that there in verse 1, I mean verse 19. In this section, John is going to make clear that his sole purpose, the sole purpose of his ministry is to prepare the way for the long-awaited Messiah, the promised Messiah who would rule over God's people. He deflects and says that he is the one who is just preparing the way. And there is one coming after him whose even sandals he's unworthy to untie. And then we get over to verses 29 and 34, or through 34, and John the Baptist says, He's here. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 29. So John the Baptist, he's preparing the way, and then he declares, He's here. This promised one, the one that you've been anticipating, the one that this delegation actually came to wonder, like, oh man, yeah, we've read our Old Testament. We know that there's one that's coming. Is this John the Baptist guy, like, cracked up, or is what he's saying actually true? And so they come to find out, and John says, behold, this is the Lamb of God. And it's important that you see, he is the one who takes away the sin of the world. So here from the outset, John is introducing us to one who is not just going to be a king over his people, though that's true, but he has come primarily to enact a spiritual kingdom because there's this deep sin problem that cannot be solved by earthly kings. There has to be one who's going to come and take our sins away from us. Think of it this way. John the Baptist comes along. He says, he's here. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Follow me and I'll take you to him. So think about it like this. John the Baptist is like a bridge that connects the Old Testament to the New Testament. I was talking with Jacob earlier about this. The bridge that crosses from Arkansas to Mississippi, it's the Hernando de Soto Bridge. Next time you get that on trivia night, you're welcome. So just as that bridge spans the Mississippi River and connects these two states so that we can travel from one to the other, John the Baptist has come like a bridge to help us show the Old Testament has now dawned into this new age and the Lord Jesus Christ is here. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's here. Now let's pretend you're in the shoes of this Jewish delegation, this group that's come to inquire. Or maybe you're even one of John the Baptist's disciples. 
You're traveling with him. You hear him talking about these things, and you've been following him around for some time. You're intrigued, but you're maybe still a bit skeptical of his claims. But there's enough of that intrigue that you're like, okay, yeah, let me, let me follow this guy across the bridge. Let's, let's go and see what's over there. Let's see where these claims will lead us. Maybe they will lead us to the Messiah. As you journey on that bridge, you hear the Baptist words testify as he says that Jesus is not just an earthly deliverer or a king or a prophet, but he is the one true son of God, one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit, as you see there in verse 33, causing this new birth and new life in his disciples. And now remember, because we're a part of John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, or we're part of this Jewish delegation, we're good readers of the Old Testament. We've come here, and we know what God has revealed to us in the Old Testament. So maybe you're here and you've never read the Old Testament. Maybe you've only scratched the surface of the Old Testament. But there, are, again, are so many promises in here that God has made that are now going to be fulfilled in Christ. And so this Jewish delegation, because they know of what God has said, and they hear John the Baptist say, Behold, this one has come to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Suddenly your mind jumps back to the Old Testament where the prophet of Joel in Joel 2.8 says that God's spirit is going to be poured out in the future. He says, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and it shall come to pass that everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So then you start to make some of these connections. You're like, wait a minute, okay. Yeah, we're journeying across this bridge. I think that some of these claims that John the Baptist is saying might actually be true. Because he just quoted and said from Joel chapter 2 that this one that we now see is going to pour out his spirit upon us. Now again, at this point, we may not agree with all that the Baptist is telling us. We may not still believe that what he's actually said is true. I mean, we can claim anything about anyone. We can build up a celebrity status if we want. But how can we be confident that what he actually says is true? But... There is no mistaking. There's no confusion about the claims that he is making, whether or not we choose to believe them. John the Baptist is claiming that the Messiah is here, that the Messiah is God's son, that the Messiah is the one through whom God's people will receive God's Holy Spirit. And just when that truth starts to sink in, just when you're starting to realize exactly the claim that he's making, this man walks by. Pick up verse 35 and 36. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. So here, we've now moved not just from John the Baptist talking about him and saying that he's here, but now this man has walked by. God in the flesh. And John says to his disciples, That's him. He's here. That is the Messiah. And what happens? Verse 37. The two disciples, that is disciples of John the Baptist, heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now again, if we had any question about John the Baptist's motivations, here we can put them to rest. 
John the Baptist clearly isn't out to make a name for himself because he happily sends his own disciples, ones that he could take credit for, to go and follow this one because he knows that he is simply preparing the way. As these disciples start to follow Jesus, they become convinced that John the Baptist's testimony is true. So now, with this specific group, they've heard all of these things that have come to pass. They see this man walking by. John tells them, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They start to follow him. And then verse 41. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, that is Andrew, we have found the Messiah. Andrew is convinced. The testimony that John the Baptist has given is true. Slowly but surely, the view from the other side of the bridge starts to come into focus, and you realize that, being, that by being with this new man, there's something special about him. There's something different about him. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. Enough so that you can agree with the disciple Andrew who just said, we have found the Messiah. This term Messiah, one that's laced with theological significance, a title that ascribes to Jesus the full weight of what he is owed, our worship, our submission as the one who is to rule over us, to save us, to keep us till the very end. As we keep working through the text, we see that another day passes. Verse 43, the next day, we're still following Jesus around, and then we see him find a man by the name of Philip. Philip immediately follows Jesus, and he's also convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's so convinced that he quickly runs to this man named Nathaniel and shouts that they have found the one whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Again, here we come across someone else who's skeptical, Nathaniel. He sees Jesus's divinity on display, though, in just a couple of verses later, because of Jesus shows his knowledge of Nathaniel before they ever even interacted. And in this instant, in Jesus revealing his knowledge of Nathaniel before they ever even interacted, he proves to Nathaniel that he is God, and Nathaniel believes in him. Nathaniel becomes convinced, and you see in verse 49, he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. On this side of the bridge, we have now become confident that Jesus is the one through whom God's children will gain access to heaven. There's no mistaking it. There's no mistaking all the claims that have been made about this one. There's also no mistaking that it's clear that this is the only one through whom we can obtain salvation. And if we think that this view on the side of the bridge is good now, Jesus' words to Nathaniel ring true for us. Verse 50 we will see greater things than these. You see, the first step in following Jesus is to recognize his true identity. And then the second step is to continue following him as he shows more of himself and his glory to you. So now, in John's gospel, the glorious word of God made flesh is firmly established as God's promised Messiah who entered time and space in history to live a righteous life so that he could offer himself as a willing sacrifice 
on the cross to pay for the sins of humanity, past, present, and future. And in fulfillment of the scriptures that he would rise from the dead after his, his death on the cross and ascend to be with the Father and the Holy Spirit as the one through whom heaven is opened up and through whom we can gain access to God, just as we see there in John chapter 1, verse 51. What Jesus promises in verse 51 is a true promise for all believers. He tells Nathaniel that you will see heaven opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. But this promise to Nathaniel is also a true promise for us. This verse 51, again, if you're attuned to your Old Testament, should bring your memory back to Genesis chapter 28, where Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, is in the wilderness and God comes to him in a dream. We see that in this dream, there's a ladder that reaches from heaven to earth. Jacob, in a vision, sees this ladder that reaches from heaven to earth, and the angels of God are ascending and descending on it. In this dream, Jacob, again, who was the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the one that God first made his promises to back in Genesis 12, sees that God is going to make good on his promise to his grandfather. God has committed himself to his people. God has made a way, despite our sin, for us to gain access into heaven. But now in John 1, 51, the beautiful reality is that Jesus identifies himself as that ladder between earth and heaven so that all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in him. And that by looking to Jesus and through Jesus, we can be restored to be in heaven with God. This Jesus invites us to trust him, to obey him, and to be with him for the rest of our days. Before John gets into Jesus' miraculous signs, further proving his identity and purpose, this section of John's gospel invites us to go and to be with Jesus. It invites us to look into these scriptures and to confess Jesus is the one, the true, and the only Son of God that was sent to this earth for my salvation and that there is no other way to the Father except through Jesus. And there's actually no way to find joy in this life apart from this Jesus. Because in Jesus, we have everything that we need. Because you see, our primary problem as humans, apart from Christ, is our sin. We can go out and we can live a fun, enjoyable, pleasant life. But if we're still in our sin, God says that we will not enjoy eternity with him. Because God has to justly punish us for our sin. Our rejection of him, our rebellion against him. But God provides for us a way to be restored back, to go through Jesus, through that ladder, to get back to heaven, if only we turn from our sins and trust in him. But if you hear anything tonight, hear that you cannot get to God apart from Jesus Christ. The Bible makes exclusive claims about our salvation. There are not multiple ways to God. Your righteous deeds will not save you, your faith in another God will not save you. It is faith in Jesus alone to save you. And if anyone out in the world tries to tell you, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but I believe that I can get to God in this way apart from Christ, that is a lie. 
The scriptures clearly teach that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ because in revealing Christ to us, we see that he is the only one through whom his death on the cross paid for our sins and in his resurrection ascended to the Father, declaring that death has no victory and that we, through him, have the only way to salvation. That's the truth of the gospel, and that's the only way, again, that we can get to God. And for us who have placed our faith in him, and as we seek to go to be with him, I want us to spend about 10 more minutes focusing in on a few more landmarks across our way through this text by considering John's testimony and Jesus' appearance. So for the next 10 minutes or so, we're just going to spend time reflecting, meditating on some of the things that we've looked at throughout this text. So you can flip over to the next page on your handout where we're going to look at John's testimony. If you look back to John chapter 1, verse 19, you'll see, again, as we mentioned earlier, that the Jews have sent a delegation of priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask John about who he is. John, in response, makes it clear that he is not the Christ. Any glory being ascribed to him, he is quickly passing off. And then he turns their attention to Isaiah 40 by saying that he is the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. You see that there in verse 23. This passage that John the Baptist quotes from Isaiah 40 contains a word of comfort. In Isaiah, at that moment, Isaiah uh, was a spokesperson for God. He was a prophet of God. And through this prophet, God sends a word of comfort and assurance to his people Israel as they're in captivity in Babylon. He assures them and tells them that they're going to be delivered. Isaiah was writing to a people who had come from a very barren landscape and who are now, these Israelites, in a spiritually barren landscape under Roman occupation. So at this point, the Israelites are still waiting to be restored back to their kingdom. So when John the Baptist hearkens back to Isaiah and says that there is one coming who will make a straight path out of the wilderness to God, he is bringing with him a message of hope a message of comfort to God's people. This is going to be a new type of exodus. Just as God led his people out of slavery in Egypt, through Jesus, he is now planning to lead his people out of slavery to sin. Now again, if you're not a Christian, you must know that the only way to make it through the wilderness of this life is to follow this Jesus. He makes it clear in this text. In a word to Christians who have decided to follow Jesus... The good news is, is that you are God's. You belong to God. The bad news is, is that you're still in the wilderness. If you're here, if you can hear my voice, we are on this side of the Jordan. We have not yet crossed into the promised land. We're still waiting to come out of the wilderness and to be with God forever. To be certain, there will be times in this life that bring you much joy, but we're not naive to see that there's also a lot of sin in this world. There's a lot of broken realities to our lives. There's a lot of hurt and pain that we experience as humans, either committed against us, either that we commit against others, or that we just experience as a result of being in a fallen world. This life may feel hard, but remember, John here is telling us that there is one who has been sent to guide us through this wilderness to lead us to that promised land. God has sent his son Jesus to guide us into 
God's unadulterated glory, his unadulterated presence. If you're here tonight and you're dealing with rejection, maybe you're dealing with stress about the future, you're dealing with depression, you're dealing with just a misplaced identity, you don't know who you are or what you ought to value, trust God. He is leading you. You have to trust that the valley and the dark places are not actually a bad place, even if it feels like it. You have to trust that these valleys and dark places are a means by which God intends to strengthen your faith, to build your dependence upon him, to strengthen your faith, to cause you to depend upon him in new ways, to love him more. You have to learn to trust that God is always sovereign. God is always good. And God is always wise in however he deals with you. In the good times and in the bad, you can trust that God is sovereign, that is that he's in control of all things, that he's good, that his character is always good. He never commits evil. He never does anything that is out of step with his perfection and his holiness. And he is always wise. He always knows exactly what you need. He always knows exactly how to care for you. Such that when you're in one of those dark places, when you're experiencing challenge, even if you don't know exactly what he's teaching you, even if you don't even know how you're going to get through it, you can trust that he and his wisdom has taken you there to teach you new things about his character, to teach you new things about his love for you. And if you just wait, if you patiently trust him, when you get out to the other side of it, you'll look back and see, wow, yeah, I see what God was up to. I see how he was strengthening me. I see how he was growing me as a believer. It's actually a scary thing as a believer to never experience hard times because then you're dependent upon yourself rather than dependent upon God. This also means that when we resort to anything but God to get us through those hard times, binging on Netflix, finding identity in a relationship or an organization or a job or a substance or anything other than God, when we look to these things to numb away our feelings or our stresses or our problems, we are functionally saying that we can navigate the spiritual and physical wilderness on our own. We're saying, we don't need you, God. I can just numb myself until I get through. I can do this in my own strength and of my own accord. Let's not do that. Let's trust in Jesus. As that hymn says, he will keep us to the end. John the Baptist is showing us that there is one who has come into the wilderness with us and he will be with us to the end. There's one more thing I want to highlight about John the Baptist. Does anyone here know who Louis Latimer is? I was going to be very impressed if there was, but this helps to prove my point, so I'm glad that no one raised their hand. I didn't know this either until I looked it up, but Louis Latimer, he was the son of runaway slaves. And get this, without his help, Alexander Graham Bell never would have filed a patent for the telephone. Who knew? This whole time, Alexander Graham Bell has been taking credit for patenting the telephone. But without 
his sidekick, Louis Latimer, a runaway slave, the patent never would have gotten filed. In the background of Graham Bell's success was another man who paved the way. I think and I hope that we saw from John the Baptist that though Jesus didn't need John the Baptist in order to start his ministry, that God chose to send John the Baptist to pave the way for Jesus. And in doing so, he didn't take credit for himself. He was like a mirror that wanted to reflect everything back to God. John had actually amassed quite the following, and he had had many disciples. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 5, we see that John the Baptist's ministry had expanded beyond Jerusalem to Judea. And it says, even to all the region around the Jordan, people were coming out to see him. I don't know about you, but if people were coming in flocks to see me, to follow me around, that would probably get to my head. I'd probably start to think, yeah, I am pretty cool. I do possess a lot of wisdom. The things I'm saying are pretty good. My Twitter followers are growing up enough that I might get verified soon. I'm on my way to being an influencer. Let's go. But what does John the Baptist do? He humbly, charitably, and without reservation points them to Jesus. He says, don't look at me, look at Jesus. Don't follow me, follow Jesus. He doesn't care at all about his own reputation or his own ministry apart from it serving to connect people to Jesus. That is his utter and ultimate concern. Will people see Jesus? It begs the question, do we live and reflect lives like that? Do we feel pride when we give a sound spiritual insight that helps others to grow? Or do we rejoice at the fact that God used us to help them see and cherish Jesus even more? As Christians, it can be easy to build up spiritual pride. Maybe we even like to be known as those who go to church. It's becoming less common in the culture, but there's still some capital that can be gained by being in spiritual circles. I think even one of the things I've seen within our own church, UBC, is that we can treat spiritual knowledge like an extra spiritual gift that puts us above other people. But if that spiritual gift of knowledge is divorced from a desire of utilizing it to help others see Jesus, then it's no good. In all that we do as Christians, we ought to be those who simply long for others through us to see Jesus. Could others look at your life and say, wow, yeah, in retrospect, I recognize that this person has helped me to be pointed to the one in whom is all my life, the one in whom is all my joy. Next, we see Jesus's appearance. In this section from verses 35 to 51, we see that the most important qualification for Jesus's disciples is to know his name. That is to be absolutely clear in heart and mind about who he is and what he has done. In verses uh, 35 through uh, 51, these 16 verses, we see Jesus identified as the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel, and Son of Man. All of these are messianic names that take on a fuller meaning throughout John's gospel. And at the heart of these names is the truth that Jesus, again, has come to save. He is the one that the Old Testament has prophesied about. 
a great application would be to take any of these titles, take any of the titles from John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51, go back and look at it later and reflect on its significance. What does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? What does it mean that he is the Son of Man? What does it mean that he is the King of Israel? Why does that bring me comfort? How does that give me hope? This is similar to what Philip invites Nathaniel to do in John chapter 1, verse 46. You know, Nathaniel here sincerely asks a good question when Philip tells him that they, have, uh, that they have seen Jesus of Nazareth because he knew the Messiah was predicted. Oh, excuse me. So Nathaniel here is asking Philip a question in chapter 1, verse 46. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So Philip has just introduced Jesus to him. He said, we've found the one that the Old Testament talks about. Jesus of Nazareth. But again, Nathanael recognizes that the Old Testament said that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. So he says, what do you mean? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's asking a sincere question. But what I love about Philip's response, Philip could have responded and said, yeah, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth in order to answer Nathaniel's questions, but what does he do instead? The end of verse 46, Philip said to him, come and see. He said, in the face of your question, come and see. Come and see him for yourself. Rather than telling Nathaniel, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Philip seems to believe that Nathanael seeing Jesus with his own eyes will do far more than anything his words could ever do. I think we can learn a lot from this. Sometimes I think we can get so self-conscious when we're sharing the gospel with others. We get self-conscious about the questions that we might have, have to answer. We get self-conscious about the objections that we may need to respond to or what the reaction of the other person might be. Let's take a challenge and encouragement from Philip. Just invite them to see Jesus. Invite them to see Jesus by sharing the hope of the gospel with them. Invite them to see Jesus by asking them to read the Bible with you. Invite them to see Jesus by inviting them to church with you. Well, they would certainly hear the gospel and behold the beauty of Jesus in his person and work on the cross when tempted to argue or to debate back and forth with someone on the merits of what Christianity teaches, how often have you simply responded back? Come and see this Jesus. Let's look at him together in this word. Let's do it together. Finally, when Nathaniel decides to go and see, he learns from Jesus that even greater things are in store, as we see in verse 50. Jesus is setting up the rest of his ministry, for he knows that Nathaniel... And indeed, all of his disciples will soon see glorious signs in his ministry. And they will eventually see the means through which he will fully and finally accomplish their salvation through his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to God. As we talked about, this promise that they will see greater things doesn't stop with the disciples. For those of us in the room, if you are in Christ Jesus, if you have turned from your sins and placed your faith in Christ you will see greater things than these. For the rest of your life, if you are in Christ, you will come to know more of the depth of God's love for you, his concern for you, his power to keep you, his peace to comfort you, his justice to vindicate you, his mercy to give you joy, 
his transcendence to cover you, his strength to defend you, his righteousness to clothe you, his kindness to warm you, his wisdom to guide you, his knowledge to grow you. All of these things are yours in Christ Jesus. And as long as God has you here, you can spend a lifetime getting to enjoy these riches. In Jesus, we have more than a friend. We have a ladder to heaven, a way to God. And in God, we have our greatest good. And if you're not a Christian, there is a promise that yet awaits you. These promises, these encouragements that we've just given to those who are in Christ Jesus are not yours. But they can be. The same way that Nathaniel obtained them is the same way that you can obtain them. You can answer, Jesus, I truly believe that you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. You are the one through whom I can gain access to God. But it is not just saying these words. Anybody can do that. It is saying those words with a heart full of faith that they are actually true. It's believing that you cannot work yourself to God. It's believing that your own righteous deeds and your own efforts are not enough. You must believe that Jesus alone is the ladder by which we can get to God. And if you do believe that, God will pour his grace into your life and you will see greater things alongside the rest of us who are in Christ Jesus. Let me pray that God would help us to grasp these things and enjoy him. Oh God, we do thank you for sending your son, Jesus. That in looking to him and exploring who he is and then by abiding with him, we can know you. And in knowing you by turning from our sins and trusting in him, we can have access to you in heaven. Oh God, help us to be like children who are excited to continue to learn more and more about what it looks like to live life in you. And God, for those that don't yet belong to you, again, we plead that you would grant to them spiritual sight that they may know you. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.